So this morning we're going to talk about godliness and what it means to be godly. The mystery of godliness in the Christian life. And hopefully shape our understanding of what it means to be godly in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to turn to our text today. 1 Timothy 3, we'll be ending at verse 14. And we'll read to chapter 4, verse 10 this morning. There's not going to be anything on the screens today, so y'all just have to rely on Old Faithful. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need to use one of those. Of course, you have your cell phones, and hopefully if you use those, you'll use them for the Bible only. So here's what the Word of God says. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, the mystery of our faith, the mystery of the gospel, that Jesus was vindicated or manifested in the flesh, that he came. He was vindicated by the Spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and now taken up in glory. What an incredible gospel message that we have. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second, some will depart from this faith by devoting themselves not to the truth that we see here in the gospel, but to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and we strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Godliness. Paul challenges Timothy in our text today to pursue godliness, to train for godliness. Because in pursuing godliness, we offer a benefit to ourselves in this life, and we also prepare ourselves for the life that is to come. So what does it mean to be godly? What does it mean to pursue godliness? How do we know if we are actually being godly? Well, in the history of the world, there have been generally two teachings about godliness, two, two ways of describing what it means to be godly, what it means to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, what it means to be able to, to gain the favor of 
the Lord. And the first one is the opposite of what Christianity teaches and unfortunately is what is being taught by the false teachers who are in our passage today. That teaching says this, that in order for you to be righteous, in order for you to be godly, you must rely upon your own work. It's how you follow in obedience whatever set of standards your religion has. It is your responsibility to please the Lord by working as hard as you can to meet the requirements of your God, whatever they may be. And I think that all of us who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ understand the devastation of that teaching and the the failure of that teaching, knowing that there's no possible way that you and I, having sinned against God, can through our own efforts, suddenly through our effort, achieve favor with him. No, there has to be something else that we rely on. So Christianity, uniquely among every faith in the world, suggests something different, that godliness is not based on your work, but rather godliness is based on the work of Christ. This is the mystery of godliness. It's godliness not according to our understanding, not according to some human precept, because if it was left up to us, we would want control of our godliness and our state before the Lord, right? We want skin in this game because we believe that we're good enough. We believe that it's possible for us to be good enough to achieve the favor of God. And yet the scripture explicitly states over and over again that we are not good enough. In fact, we are far worse than we could have ever imagined. And so it's incumbent upon us not to rely upon ourselves, not to rely upon our own work, but to rely upon the work of Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who came when we could not go. He manifested himself in the flesh to represent us, to be obedient in the way that you and I could never be obedient to the righteous and holy standard of God. He died for the penalty of our sin, even though he was perfect. But what seemed like a defeat for Christ really was a victory for the church because he was vindicated by the Spirit. And now the heavenlies and the nations have seen the glory of God in display through the work of Christ on which we rest today. Two approaches to godliness. One that relies upon human effort and one that relies upon godly divine effort. And friends, there is a danger, a danger in the first teaching. A danger that we have to be careful to weed out among the church because we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We hold up the teaching of the gospel. We're the ones who declare the truth of the gospel, that there's no effort that man can make that is good enough to be considered godly. There's no way in our own strength that we can achieve the righteous and holy standard of God, but it is God working through Christ alone who can make us godly, who can empower us to be obedient in ways that we could not be obedient before. And let me just offer you two observations this morning about the danger of that first teaching. Firstly, of course, the eternal danger Because if we rely upon our work, we will be eternally separated from a holy and righteous God. Any doctrine, any religion 
any silly myth or irreverent teaching of man that says that you can be good enough in your own strength to achieve righteousness before a holy and righteous God, friends, will lead you to eternal condemnation. And it's all around us, isn't it? This, this reliance upon the self that we need to be careful does not infiltrate into the church. That doesn't dismiss the need to be obedient in the Christian life. It's just obedient from the right place. That's the first danger that if we rely upon ourselves, there's a, a very real chance that we'll be eternally separated from God. And secondly, not only does it lead to eternal separation, it causes us to misinterpret God's gifts. This teaching steals joy rather than gives joy. This teaching that you and I can, can rest in our own work steals joy rather than gives joy. And I want to break that second part down today because I think that's the major concern of what Paul is writing here in chapter 4 as he's addressing these false teachers. Let me, let me offer these two dangers of this false teaching in another way. Firstly, this danger that we can rely upon our own work threatens the saving work of Christ that the gospel puts forward. But secondly, it also threatens the satisfying work of Christ that is put forth in the gospel. Reliance upon the self, a teaching of self-righteous godliness, threatens the saving work of Christ and the satisfying work of Christ. This kind of self-righteousness steals joy rather than gives joy. And here's how. Look at the teaching of the false teachers here. As they misrepresent some good gifts from God, and in teaching self-reliance, cause the people who are following them to miss out on the joy of these gifts from God. Their false teaching of self-reliance gives them a false perspective on two good gifts that then steal the joy from the people of God of enjoying those gifts and being satisfied in a way that leads them to worshiping God. So here's what they're saying. Deceived by spirits doing the work of demons who want to steal our affection from the Lord rather than allow us to love the Lord, say this, do not marry and do not eat certain foods. Do not marry and do not eat certain foods. Do not enjoy these gifts because in not doing them, you will prove to God your righteousness. Now, do you see immediately we've already returned to a pre-gospel understanding of what it means to be godly? In you not getting married, in you resisting marriage, your work, your, your abstinence from that is going to achieve favor from God. And you not eating certain things, that work is going to achieve favor with God. And Paul immediately counteracts that by saying it is not good doctrine. It is not doctrine that is rooted in the mystery of godliness that's put forth in the gospel. In fact, rather than bringing you godliness, 
It's leading you to rely upon the wrong thing for your salvation and it is stealing a tool that God has given to us, a gift that God has given to us to strengthen our joy in him. So why are they saying this about marriage and food? We really don't know. We're not entirely sure why these false teachers are saying what they are teaching. It could be because of an overrealized eschatology or, or thinking about the end times. It could be because of some really bad false teaching or pagan teaching that's around them that they're bringing into the church. All that we know, though, is that what they are saying about marriage and what they are saying about food is not what God has said about these things. God has said that marriage is good, right? Does it, doesn't God say that about marriage? In fact, let's think about for a second what the Bible says about marriage. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Jesus Christ himself in his earthly teaching in Matthew 19, 4-8 says that marriage is a good thing that we should honor. 1 Corinthians 7 says that marriage is an instrument, a gift given to us by God that actually helps us walk in godliness. Isn't that incredible? Listen to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So it seems like this teaching, whatever the reason why it infiltrated into Ephesus, is commonplace in this time, so here in Corinth. Because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Isn't that interesting? So Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 that actually marriage is a gift from God that is meant to help you in godliness. So what these false teachers are saying about marriage goes contrary directly to what it is that God has said about marriage. So let's think for a moment. How is marriage a good gift from God that is meant to strengthen our joy in this life and cause us to enjoy him more? Well, think about all that God provides for us in marriage. Of course, there is this piece of protection as we seek godliness to have a way for our desire for sexual relationship to be honoring to the Lord. But it's more than that, isn't it? In marriage, God shows us a glimpse of the kind of intimate relationship that he desires to have with us. He wants us to experience a relationship where you know each other so intimately and still choose to love each other that that translates to an understanding, even though imperfect, of how God wants to relate to you. It's an act of grace. Marriage, right? It's a gift from God. Jordan knows me better than anyone else. Anyone else. She knows things about me that no one else will ever know. And the fact that she still chooses to love me is a powerful demonstration of the kind of love that God shows me in Christ. What a gift that you are denying yourself, Paul says, if you resist marriage. Now, some people are going to be like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and call the celibacy. But for the mass majority of people, we're going to be pursuing marriage. And the gift of marriage should be pursued because it's a gift from God that's meant to stir our joy for him. To remind us that he ultimately satisfies. Another incredible benefit of marriage is remembering that no human being can perfectly satisfy you. 
In our marriage, we are constantly reminded of the fact that each of us are imperfect. And it is foolish and dangerous for me to pursue satisfaction in my mate when it can only be found in God. There's great benefit then in this gift, if we have the right perspective, to lead us to godliness rather than diminish our godliness. And the same thing can be said about food, right? We've already seen throughout the Old Testament that a righteousness that is tied to abstaining from certain foods is very limited in a redemptive way. And that whatever value it had has now been eclipsed by the gospel. Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 7 as he undoes our expectations about how food, certain food, makes us unworthy, unrighteous, or unrighteous or not. He says in Mark 7, verses 14 to 19, calling the people to him. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered into the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but to his stomach and is expelled? And in this moment, he declares all food to be clean. So there was an understanding pre-gospel that you abstaining from certain foods showed your devotion to the Lord and brought about favor. But that no longer is the case after the gospel. There's a different understanding of food, that, that what you eat no longer has any say in what, where you stand before God as long as you eat it in the right way. So let's think about what the Bible says about food. It is a gift from God, food. It is a provision from God. He gave us the world to cultivate. He gave us the world to find sustenance. And as we find sustenance in this world, in the form of food, it's to remind us that everything we have is from a good providential God. And as we eat and as our stomachs are satisfied by the provision that God has given to us, it points us to a greater food, a greater appetite, a greater hunger that we have spiritually that has been met in the bread of life. So food then actually becomes a tool for joy in this life, satisfaction in this life that points us to greater satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in God so long as we receive it in the right way. So here's what Paul is counteracting as he addresses these false teachers. You are deceiving the people of God. You are causing them to rest in a false hope in their own act. And at the same time, you are stealing from them the enjoyment of good, God, of good gifts that God gives, has given to his people. And in so doing, you're robbing God of his glory you're robbing God of an opportunity for his people to embrace the gift as they were designed and allow them to point them toward greater love and affection for God. And he said that has no place in the church. And so he says to Timothy, you need to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, verse six. You need to put these things before the brothers. You need to give them good doctrine 
to hold themselves to. So they're not trusting in the wrong things. And they're not denying the good gifts that God has given to them in a vain pursuit of godliness. Rather, the whole of life and all of these gifts should be baptized under the understanding of the gospel. You see, when we understand the gospel rightly, it allows us to enjoy God in the right way and enjoy the gifts that he has given to us in the right way. See, here's what sin does. Sin causes us to take these good gifts and make them into gods, make them into idols. Is it possible that marriage can become an idol in your life? Yes. Is it possible that the pursuit of marriage can become an idol in your life? Is it possible that your spouse can become an idol in your life? Is it possible that you could seek to find your greatest joy in your marriage relationship? Absolutely. But that's a false understanding of marriage as well. Not promoted by self-righteousness, but by sin. A different kind of sin, a different ultimate placing of marriage that it was never designed to have in your life. Is it possible that food can become an idol in your life? Now, I know we're talking to Southern Baptists here. And we usually don't talk about this stuff. But is it possible that you could find comfort in food? and not in God? Is it possible that you could love food more than you love God? Absolutely. Is it, is it possible that you could love food so much that it leads to your physical destruction rather than enabling you to live a life that is to the glory of God? Absolutely. That's also a false understanding of food. So how is it that you and I come to a right understanding under the gospel of our ultimate satisfaction being in God and also enjoying the gifts that he's given to us in a way that leads us back to God rather than from him? Well, Timothy tells us, or Paul tells us here. Look at verses four and five. Everything created by God is good. Now listen, we're not talking about anything inherently immoral here. We're not talking about things that in and of themselves, lead us away from God, okay? We're talking about perversions of good gifts that we can have a right mentality about, embrace, and they can actually become tools of worship, tools of affection, rather than stealing our affection from the Lord. Everything created by God is good. That includes marriage, sex, and food. And nothing is to be rejected, listen, if it is received with thanksgiving, what does that mean? It means that as you receive it, you immediately credit God to be the one who gave it to you. And here's how we do that. It's made holy. It's sanctified. It's, it's honoring to the Lord and leads to your godliness by the word of God in prayer. Every time we encounter a gift that has the danger of, of stealing our affection from the Lord rather than increasing our affection from the Lord, the answer is not just to abstain from it and the hope that our abstaining from it will make us more godly. The, the right way to approach it is to sit under the Word of God and allow the Word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit to reshape our understanding of that gift and then pray that the Holy Spirit would root that truth in our heart so that we actually believe about the gift what God has said about the gift. And that allows us to receive it in thanksgiving. So here's what I really want to press into us today. I think 
that we often move between two extremes in the Christian life when we think about godliness. And I think if we are honest, if you were to write down your definition of what it means to be godly, I think a lot of us would have an understanding of godliness like a hermit, right? That a hermit is what it means to be godly, that you forsake anything in this world, you go live in a cave, you, you shut yourself off, and you just wait for Jesus Christ to return, right? And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us. We talk a lot about, and rightfully so at our church, about overindulging in the pleasures of this life. And it's very important that we talk about those things because we live in America and we have access to a lot of comfort, a lot of toys, a lot of entertainment, a lot of things that, again, can be good gifts from God, but when we overindulge in them, become obstacles from us knowing God. But I think it's also important for us to talk about the other side of this coin, that we can become prideful at how much we don't enjoy this life. We can become prideful at how many things we don't delight in, thinking that somehow in not delighting in those things, we are more godly than those who over-delight in them. And I want to say that both of these extremes, legalism and licentiousness, are not of God because they are not baptized under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear me. There are good things that God has given to us in this life that you can delight in and enjoy. Do you know that? Do you know that God has promised us eternal life and abundant life? Do you know that it's possible to live as a Christian with joy in this life? Right? How many of you would say that your life right now is characterized by unmatched joy? I'm, I think a lot of us want to say that we are and that we have that goal. But I think a lot of us have not yet embraced and engaged the life of joy that God has provided for us. And I think it's because we're always afraid of where we'll fall between these two bookends of legalism and licentiousness. But the Bible has not called us to those L words. The Bible has called us to love. And when we love God rightly, we can love everything he's given to us rightly. And isn't that what godliness really is? Godliness is saying, I love God the most, and I'm going to build my life as a reflection of that primary love. And here's what I think happens. When we train ourselves in godliness, here's what we're doing. We're believing that everything that used to steal our affection from the Lord is now an instrument to grow our affection for the Lord. Because we've set that thing under the word of God and we've prayed to believe that it is what God designed it to be and how God designed it to be so that we can receive it with thanksgiving. So we don't reject the gift of God, that is marriage. We don't reject the gift of God, that is food but we receive it in a godly way that leads to thanksgiving and stirs our heart for the Lord. Friends, I want us to be a joyful people. I want us to enjoy the world that God created for us. Do you know that God created this world with a purpose? And it wasn't just for us to escape from it. It was for us to learn about him, to know him more, 
to experience the gifts that he gave to us and turn that experience back to him and worship and in praise. And while it is true that our experience in this world has been broken by sin, while it is true that our encounter with the good gifts of God can be perverted by sin, the gospel allows us to think of them differently because we are not resting in our own work to save us. We are resting in the work of Christ. And when we rest in the work of Christ, we trust that it is his work that saves us and that even now, between the first coming of Christ and the second, God is working to satisfy our hearts and point us to a greater day when we will be with him forever. And that doesn't deny the gifts that God has given us here. It just allows us and calls us to treat them in right perspective. To receive them with thanksgiving. Because we've sat them under the word of God and prayer. I believe this is how we train ourselves for godliness. I believe this is how we approach life in a godly way. So that we enjoy, verse 8, the promise for this present life and for the life to come. We shouldn't live in fear of what it is that God has blessed us with. We should live in faith. And let's think about the whole course of life, right? I mean, he uses two examples here, but they apply to everything. Is it possible for us to make nature an idol? Yes. Is it possible for us to worship nature? Yes. Is it also possible for us to underappreciate nature and what God teaches about himself in nature? Yes. So what do we do with nature? Listen, go to the beach. Enjoy the beach. Listen to the waves. But don't worship them. Worship the God who created them. Go to the mountains. Sit before them. Enjoy them. Allow God to knit your heart back together as you sit in peace and tranquility and reflect upon the greatness of God. But don't worship those mountains. Worship the one who created them. What about money? Our money. Is it possible for us to turn money into an idol? Yes. But is money also a gift from God? Yes. So what do you do with your money? You situate it before the Lord. Does that mean that you sell everything? And don't have enough money to provide for your family? Occasionally, God may call somebody to that. But on the whole, what he's asking us is to consider all the blessing that he's given to us in light of who he is, and then considering what the Bible says about money, and in prayer, we offer back to God a portion of what he has given to us so that we treat the gift from God in a way that honors him. And we could go on and on and on down the list of things, right? Any of these things that can become idols in our heart, that are in fact gifts from God, the way that we train ourselves in godliness to see them as tools of satisfaction, as part of the instruments for which God, or part of, part of the instruments that through which God uses to stir our hearts for Him, is to baptize them through a spiritual understanding of what it is that God means to do with them in light of the gospel. And when we do that, in every area of our life, we are training ourselves for godliness while at the same time 
not placing too much of our hope here. Because remember, we toil and we strive for a different end. We work. This is hard work, by the way, right? This work of making sure that our hearts are not consumed with the gifts of God, but God himself. It's hard work. We toil and strive in this way because we have set our hope on the living God, who alone is the Savior of us all, the Savior of those who have believed. That's not teaching universalism there. It's just reminding us that it is for those whom God has called that he is saved. And that if we have been called, if we have been saved through the work of Christ, we have the ability to live in a new way. Removing the idols of our lives, removing the idols of our hearts, but also enjoying the good gifts of God in a way that points us to him rather than distracting us from him. And I so want us to live in this, friends. I don't always want us to be consumed with what we have to give up. I want us to be consumed with what we get. Here's a big concern I have in the Christian life. I think there is a lie that we believe as Christians, and here's what it is, that what we are giving up is better than what we get when we turn to Christ. Everybody ever felt that way? That the life you're giving up, the stuff you're giving up, is better than what you get in God, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's foolishness. It's silly. Because everything you're giving up, all you're doing is simply repositioning it under the Lordship of Christ allowing it to point you to the place where you were ultimately satisfied in the first place. And so those things, when they are God's in of themselves, steal your joy. Why would you not want to give that up? If marriage was stealing your joy, stealing the life from you, why would you not want to give that up? If, if food was stealing your joy, stealing the, the, the reason you get up in the morning, why would you not want to give that up? But when we come to a, a greater understanding of creation of the world, of why we were created and why these gifts were given, and how if we have the right mentality, they can lead us to greater love for Christ, not remove us from the love of God, then those things finally gain their proper understanding and achieve in our hearts what they were designed to achieve in the first place. We're not losing anything. We're gaining everything. When we allow the good gifts of God, when we allow the totality of this life to be situated under the gospel. It's a mystery. Godliness and the Christian life. That Jesus alone saves. That Jesus alone satisfies. That godliness is not based upon your work, but the completed work of Christ. And once you've understood that, everything that used to be an idol in your life can suddenly be baptized to be used as it was designed to be used in your life to stir your affection and stir your love for God. So train yourself in godliness in light of the gospel. Remember that he saved you, but also remember that he satisfies you. And these gifts that he's given to us are not dangers in godliness. They can actually be instruments for your godliness if you pursue them in the right way. If you engage in them with thanksgiving because you've situated them under the word of God in prayer. So how can we respond this morning to the truth of God's word? Well, firstly, let me ask you this question. 
What do you think godliness is? Where have you set your hope? Do you think you can be godly by working your way to God? Are you trusting in your work? Or are you today trusting in the completed work of Christ? Friends, I don't want any of you in this room to be deceived. Demons, spirit of this world, they want you to be deceived. They want you to think that your work can save you and not the work of Christ. Hear me this morning. You can never be good enough. But praise be to God that Jesus was. And you can embrace his provision for you today. Don't let that false teaching distract you from the saving work of Christ. But also don't let that false teaching distract you from the satisfying work of Christ. When we turn these gifts from God into ultimate things, they will steal our joy because they are operating in a way they were never designed to operate. But when we situate them under a right understanding of the gospel, suddenly the very things that turned our heart from the Lord can now cause our heart to run to him. Because they are now instruments of godliness in our life. So let me ask you this question, those of you who are in Christ, how are you pursuing godliness? Are you so resistant to enjoying any gift of God because of fear that it will become an idol? Or are you doing the hard work of godliness, situating that good thing under the word of God and prayer so that you can receive it in thanksgiving? Doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. Doesn't mean that you always, you won't return to idolatry occasionally, but there's an opportunity for repentance. But I don't want us to allow the fear of failure in this to remove the opportunity for us to enjoy the things that God has given us in this life. You can over-enjoy, which is a bad thing, but you can also rob God of an opportunity for glory by not enjoying the gifts that he's given to you. As a dad, there's nothing greater, there's no greater experience than giving your son or your daughter a gift and watching them play with it and watching them enjoy it. Isn't that true, parents in the room? Like when you see your kid enjoying a gift that you've given to you, their joy becomes your joy. Listen, let's not miss an opportunity for us to enjoy the good gifts of God. And in so doing, glorify him with these gifts. Marriage, food, and the like. Let's situate everything under the word of God and in prayer so that we can receive them with thanksgiving and glorify God in the process. Finally, let us remember that whatever joy we experience here is a foretaste of what is to come. And the danger becomes when we think that this world is all that there is. That we set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people. We set our hope on a return of Christ where we will be ushered into unending joy. Not dangerous joy, but perfect joy. As we sit before a throne and worship our King. Wherever you are, would you bow your head this morning? Spend some time asking the Lord to help you know how to respond. If you do not know Jesus, if you've not trusted in his work alone for salvation, then I would just ask you in a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about
who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Don't be deceived, friends. For those of us who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, are you living in the satisfying work of Christ? Are you enjoying the good gifts that God has given to you in the right way? Not in a sinful way, letting them become ultimate. Not in a sinful way in resisting them because we're not doing the hard work of godliness and situating them before the word of God in prayer to receive them with thanksgiving in a way that leads us to greater worship of God. It's true we need to be on guard. There are dangers coming after our heart all the time. But be diligent in being godly by not being afraid of those gifts, but embracing them in the way that God intended them to be embraced. Would you pursue godliness in greater ways? And finally, finally, would you set your hope in a coming king? All the joys that we have here are foretastes of what is to come. All the gifts that we have here are pointing us to a greater reality. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy them here. It just means that we don't enjoy them ultimately. We don't love them in the same way that we love God. We just allow God to use them to increase our love for him. Christians are not called to a life of legalism. We're not called to a life of lavishness. We're called to a life of ultimate love, of love of God above all things. And all of these gifts that he's given to us are meant to help us love him more. Oh, Father, would you help our hearts? Help our hearts. Continue to work in them, not allowing us to rest on our own ability and our own self-righteousness, but work in them so that we can enjoy the gifts you've given us in a way that leads to our satisfaction and joy, abundant life, alongside eternal life. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.